Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Hi, listeners. We're so glad to have you back with an exciting special guest today. And I do mean exciting because I've listened to this guy rocket on podcasts and just the positive energy. And the information that comes out is very entertaining. So we're so honored to have Jonathan Baylor here. Jonathan, are you there? I am, and I'm excited to be here and bring positivity and excitement. So if you don't know Jonathan and you've just come out from under that rock, he's a New York Times best-selling author and the founder of SaneSolution.com. That's S-A-N-E, Solution.com. He's a nutrition and exercise expert, a former personal trainer who specializes in using modern science and technology to simplify health. He's collaborated with top scientists for over 10 years, analyzing over 1,300 studies and garnering endorsements from top doctors and scientists from Harvard Medical School, Johns Hopkins, and UCLA. So that's what I like about you, Jonathan, is you you have that plain talk and that enthusiasm, but also very steeped in science. So I'm going to bring in another one of our popular experts on the podcast. Welcome, Mark Sisson hey. and Jonathan Baylor. Thanks for calling me popular, Brad. That's, uh, you're, the, you're the only one who knows that, right? Hey, Jonathan, how's it going, man? Real good, Mark. Hey, it's a pleasure to chat with you again. Uh, likewise. So um, I want to get into uh, this, this your background a little bit. And um, what I want to understand in this podcast is why do you do what you do? <laughs> it's a good question because it's, it's been a long road. I started out doing what everyone else does. It's a, it's a similar story to I think most people in this, in this smarter food quality movement, which is we're steeped in the conventional wisdom. I, I was a trainer and I was making my living telling people to eat less and exercise more. The very seminal moment that I had that was unique to me though was while I was a trainer, I had the opposite goal of most of my clients. I wanted to get bigger. I wanted to be a big college football player. So I was consuming about 6,000 calories per day in an effort to gain weight while I was working with clients who were predominantly, I was between 18 and 21 at this time. I was working with clients who were predominantly female, moms, grandmothers often, and they had the exact opposite goal. They wanted to get smaller. So I did what I was taught as a trainer. I put them on 1200 calorie diets and had them do way more cardio than I would ever dream of doing. And in that moment, I wasn't getting bigger and they weren't getting smaller. We were both just getting sick and sad. So like anyone who is is in the field of helping people, if you feel that you are not helping people and actively hurting them, it, it would be who of you to take a step back and, and reevaluate the approach you're using. That's what I did. And that's then what set me on this 10 plus year journey of complete geeking out and, and hardcore academic research. I'm an engineer by trade. So I love deconstructing very complicated technical problems and working with very technical people to make their information accessible to everyone. That's what I did at Microsoft for 10 years. And that's what I'm doing with biology now and with the same solution. So that's 
that's how I got so inspired to do this. I saw firsthand that both just eating more doesn't make people bigger in and of itself, and just eating less doesn't make people smaller in and of itself. There has to be something more going on. I wanted to figure out what that was. All right. Well, then um, the, the question that follows almost obviously is if we know what doesn't work, do we know what does work? <laughs> it's it's a lot harder to find out what does work than what doesn't work. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to build a bridge that will collapse. There's only a couple ways to build a bridge that will uh, withstand the test of time. So I think we're learning more and more and more what works. And I think, Mark, as you obviously cover so well in your work, we have a great starting point. We can say, look, it's not as if having 70% of your population being overweight has been with us since the beginning of the time. It's not as if we used to have 40 million children under the age of five who are overweight. It's not as if one out of every four people have always been diabetic or pre-diabetic. In fact, it used to be one out of every 4,000 people. And in fact, the earliest recorded rates of obesity in this country were sub 3% from the early 1900s from military records. So we do know that there is a right approach. We don't know necessarily if there's one right approach for everybody, but I think if we just turn the clock back and say, as obvious as it sounds, what did we do prior to having the problem? And can that point us to how to solve the problem now? That can really get us headed in the right direction. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I go back to my uh, school days where the cliche now is there was the one fat kid in school. You know, it was, uh, it was an anomaly um, and, and everybody else was, all the other kids were pretty much uh, what we, I guess what we would call average. But the incidence of obesity was, was um, definitely far less than it is today. And, uh, you know, and even in Southern California where I reside and we sort of have a um, a little bit of a, a skewed look on the world because people are into fitness here more than they are in the rest of America. It's still a huge, huge problem. So you and I have talked in the past about the, this concept that seems to drive conventional wisdom, the, the calories in, calories out uh, discussion. And on the last uh, podcast we did together, you know, I mentioned to you that my take on that was it was more about calories uh, stored versus calories burned. In other words, there was uh, there were so many nuances to what you ate versus uh, how much exercise you did, and some of it had to do with what I would consider the the hormonal effect of food. That is, every bite of food that you that you take in has a hormonal impact on the body, and it's different hormones that are being called to play. Um, do you agree with that concept, or how is your take on this um, alike or different from that? Mark, you're one of the few people who covers the gray area here very well, right? Most people want to say it's either, it's just calories in, calories out. Like, why are we even talking about this? It's so clearly obvious. And then there are people who are like, yeah, hey, it's just calories. No, this is not about calories at all. And that's not what I'm saying. I don't think that that's at all what you're saying. I think what we're both saying is that focusing on calories is the wrong thing to focus on. They exist. They're, they're relevant, but they're only marginally relevant when you focus on the right things. And, and the reason they can actually become counterproductive is they can cause us to focus or take our focus off that which really matters. So it's not that, like you said, it's not that the calories in, calories out equation doesn't exist. It does exist. But imagine, let's say that 
your favorite sports team just just lost a game. I live in Seattle, so let's use the Seattle Seahawks. Let's say the defending champion, Super Bowl champion, Seattle Seahawks, on the off chance that they lost a game, there was a press conference after the game, and, they, and the media was really angry, and they asked the coach. They said, Coach, wh- why did you lose the game? And the coach looked down and got a really confused look on his face and, and looked up at the reporter and said, well, you know, the other team scored more points than we did. <laughs> And in the future, our plan is to let them score less and we're going to score more, right? We, we would look at that coach and say, you're a fool because like, we get that, we understand that, but we're really asking a different question. The same thing applies here when we talk about weight gain. One more analogy. Imagine someone was struggling with psychological issues and imagine they went into a psychiatrist and they said, man, I'm just, I'm just depressed. You know, I had some personal crises taking place in my life. And, and, and it's, just, it's just been a struggle. And the psychiatrist looks at them as if they were stupid and says, look, I, I've seen happy people. You just need to frown less and smile more. What, what's your problem? And right. again, that's like we, we understand. Yes, if someone is gaining fat, by definition, they are storing more calories than they are burning. But I think what we're really asking are deeper questions. Like if someone has 100 pounds of surplus fat on their body, why does their brain ever tell them to eat? They have an abundance of energy already stored in their body. So what we're really asking are why are some people perpetually driven to eat more calories than they quote unquote need. And then why are there some people like me, and this is how my journey started, who no matter how many calories we eat, we can't seem to store more than we're burning. That's the real question. Okay, that's the real question. Now, in the smarter science of Slim and in the sane solution, do you have an answer? We can certainly influence the amount of calories that our body burns at baseline. There is a large genetic component. This is not a popular thing to talk about, but the research is quite clear that about 45 to 70% of our baseline body composition is highly, highly genetically predetermined. That doesn't mean we're hopeless, just like the way your face looks is really highly genetically predetermined. That doesn't mean you can't make yourself more or less attractive. It just means you have a play, a set of uh, a hand you've been dealt and you need to do the best with that. So can everyone be six feet five and have a six pack? Absolutely not. Can everyone be healthy and fit for the long term? Absolutely. And as you talk about in your work, Mark, this is really about just not getting in your body's way. We've been given this, this diatribe of, of you're, we're broken, and unless we intervene, we're going to become diabetic, and we're going to become diseased, and we're going to become sick by default, which is, of course, ridiculous. The most common cause of death up until the current few generations was natural causes. You really don't hear about that anymore, but people used to just die quietly in their sleep. Everyone dies of a disease today. That, that didn't used to be the case. So really, if we just don't break our body, right? what do you do to keep your car running to 300,000 miles? You just don't do stuff to break it, right? Like the car is designed to do that. You just need to give it the things it needs to survive. So if we can focus our lifestyle on things that don't break our body, the wrong quality of inputs, then we will maintain the default state for humanity, which is to be healthy and fit long-term. That's interesting because one of my um, primal blueprint laws is avoid poisonous things. And um, 
what you seem to be saying here is that this is more a question of getting out of our own way and avoiding the bad things than it is trying to discover some magic, all-encompassing food that's going to uh, save humanity. Um, in other words, and I look, I look back to the robustness of the human digestive tract and the fact that different cultures around the world can survive on so many very different uh, macronutrient breakdown and profiles, um, and yet you know, each of them seems to have, particularly in the indigenous peoples and the blue zones, you know, have robust good health long into, uh, uh, well into the uh, 70s, 80s, and maybe even uh, centenarians. And it may be more due to the fact that they're avoiding the crap than they've found some magic berry. That's exactly right, Mark. We, and, and I don't know whether it gets back to uh, materialism or various takes on morality that involve original sin, but if you look at evolution, which I know all of your listeners are a big fan of using that as a template to guide their decisions, as they should, because it's good stuff, <laughs> there's, there is no more evolutionarily fit species that has ever existed on this planet than Homo sapien. Right? We, we have dominated all other species. So clearly we, we have evolved. Think about how sick and how much we struggle today, right? If by default humans were this fragile, just, Oh my God, we're dying of everything. And by default, we're all going to be 300 pounds and diabetic. We would have never ever gotten to where we are today. We need to look back and say, dear God, we are actually the most robust species that has ever existed on this planet, as evidenced by the fact that we've completely taken over the planet. How is it that this premier robust species is struggling so much today? Right. Now, you mentioned uh, this recipe that we have that wants us to be uh, healthy and fit. Uh, and you also mentioned that there are some familial predispositions that cannot be overlooked. That gets us back to the the quandary that so many people have, which are people are looking for a one size fits all formula to um, to embrace a lifestyle, a dogma that they can follow because they want to do the right thing. And yet the reality is, as I've said uh, for the longest time, that we all sort of have a range of outcomes. It's not that it's predetermined, but there are some limitations. So you know, I'm an ectomorph. Um, I was always going to be a skinny guy, a hard gainer, um, but my range of outcomes, I'm 5'10". I could have been 5'8". I might have gotten to 6'1", and I'm suggesting that, that some of that has to, has to do with the epigenetic factors, the actual lifestyle turning on of, of certain genes and, and, and uh, suppressing of other genes through my formative years and growth, growth years that were a direct result of the environment that I, that I surrounded myself with. So we have a range of outcomes. I was never going to be, even if I tried, like you, if, if we tried our darndest, there's no way that we're going to weigh 230 pounds, really, um, let alone 450. Um, just because the, the familial genes sort of proscribe a range of outcomes. But as that range slides further and further um, to one side or another, there are people who, you know, are in the 300, 400 pound category who are never going to be 125 pounds for the same, for the same reason. Now, where I'm going with this is recent studies in epigenetics that suggest of the heritability of, of methylation and the heritability of epigenetic factors. I think that's going to be the real new frontier for us to examine. In other words, my predisposition 
for being um, type 2 diabetic, for instance, doesn't necessarily come from a long lineage. It just comes from the most two, re- the two most recent generations that uh, either um, were, were in a period of famine and set me up so that my body wanted to hoard fat and, and uh, manage sugar differently. You know what I mean? You, know, you, you see where I'm going with that? Absolutely. There are, there are such fascinating studies on the immediacy of which just the previous generation, so just your parents and then even your grandparents, can have on your genetic expression. Just like you're saying, there are these amazing studies. I, I was shocked to see that these studies took place because, wow, the cost and, and intention that was needed to, to do them was phenomenal, where they took people, so they would have a, a mother and a father, and they would have a child. And bef- for this first child, the mother and the father, so the same genetic inputs, the mother was not diabetic, or she did not have gestational diabetes. And then for the second child, same father, same mother, she did. So she either got gestational diabetes or she was diabetic or had metabolic syndrome prior to the pregnancy. And they found consistently over and over again that the child born to the mother who had gestational diabetes or was diabetic or had metabolic syndrome was significantly more likely to struggle with those same maladies as they grew up than their sibling. So same set, same source of DNA, but even a different uterine environment, and you get a different genetic expression. It's amazing because what it does is it's sort of good news, bad news. The the bad news is it really puts the pressure on on parents who are considering having children, uh, you know, to live a life that uh, optimizes fitness and health prior to having those children. Um, and I guess that's kind of the bad news. The good news is, as we've said all along, that that just having that predisposition does not doom you to that fate. Um, it just means that you, more than most, really need to pay attention to what you eat, how much sleep you get, how much sun exposure you get, how you manage stress, and so on and so forth. And that's, you know, they, so I guess um, we, we, you know, what I like to say is some people can get away with more than others, and and those who can't get away with it um, are obliged to really, like I say, pay close attention to all of the uh, lifestyle elements that are going to avoid uh, turning on those genes that cause metabolic syndrome or type two diabetes. Um, but but. Again, they're not doomed to do so. They just they just have to pay more attention than most. That's exactly right. And I would I would add to that that those who are blessed with the genetic predisposition to they they can tolerate it. They can do it. Let's make sure that if we are those people, so I'm I'm one of those people. Mark, it sounds like you might even be one of those people when it comes to body composition. Let's ensure that we don't take that for granted and let's 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 ensure that we don't project that on on other people cuz that's I hate to admit this but that's what I did so when I was a trainer I just thought to myself like what what's wrong with these people why don't they just try harder clear clearly this isn't that hard like I'm skinny why, why can't they just try harder? It's a willpower problem. I think it's a really big challenge because just because your Uncle Steve smoked for 90 years and didn't get lung cancer, that doesn't mean everyone should should smoke. It also doesn't mean cigarettes aren't bad for you. But in this country, I feel like the reason the research that you talk about, Mark, the research that I talk about, the, res- the real research around obesity and wellness, the reason that hasn't made it into the mainstream is people don't look at this as a scientific issue. They look at it as a moral issue. And if we can just say, you know what, the reason we have an obesity problem in this country is because 70% of Americans are lazy and stupid or both, 
then we don't need to look at the science. And that that breaks my heart. And I think that we're not going to see this obesity epidemic and diabetes epidemic get turned in the other direction until we take this more empathetic scientific approach that we're talking about here. Right. Um, yeah, it's, I, I always sort of invoke the notion that um, that humans, the human genome in general, the recipe that we all possess in our DNA, um, has us all operating at a biomechanical, uh, biochemical level, pretty much the same. We all store fat the same way. We all burn fat the, using the same chemical pathways. We all have access to a lot of these different uh, pathway choices. It's just the degree to which we go down a path or another uh, that differs among individuals. And um, you're right. So there are some people who um, who have had uh, struggles with weight loss because they haven't found the way to optimize that path of burning fat or that op- that to way to optimize the way of of um, you know building a little bit more muscle and creating a little bit more of an en- engine uh, in uh, upregulating um, mitochondria so that they can burn fat at rest and things like that and and yet these principles all uh, work the same way from one individual to, to another. It's just the degree to which that they manifest themselves that's, that's really the issue and really the, 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 um, the challenge for people to discover on their own. A great example I found to help explain the very true point you just made is think about eyeglasses. So I have terrible vision. Terrible. If you understand prescriptions, I'm negative seven in both, both eyes, which means you take my glasses off and my contacts out, I'm not, I'm running into walls. Not, I have no good, I have terrible vision. So, but imagine that, Mark, you and I met up and you said, Jonathan, you know, I, I, my vision has gotten blurry. Can you help me? And I said, Mark, absolutely I can. And I took my glasses off my head and I put them on your face and I said, boom, see, Mark, isn't that better? Chances are you'd say, Jonathan, not only is that not better, but I'm getting a headache. What's wrong with you? Like, clearly, clearly you are completely wrong and, and this is not the correct approach. Well, hold on, let's take a step back. All human eyes are basically the same. And the way any corrective lens work applies the same scientific principles. So the core underlying biology is the same. The core scientific principles used to heal or accommodate that biology is the same. But how we specifically implement that depends on the specific eye or the specific person in this example and the specific metabolic situation, neurological situation, and gastrointestinal situation when we're talking about eating and exercise for the individual. Speaking of gastrointestinal situation, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about the biome, the gut biome, and uh, dysbiosis, uh, healthy gut, uh, the notion that there's uh, 100 trillion um, cells living in us that are not us, but that uh, reside there uh, with our permission, and sometimes without our permission. What is your take on the relative importance of, the, of gut health and the gut biome with what you're doing with uh, Sane Solution and with uh, Smarter Science. Extremely important. We talk about the three, we, we simplify a lot of complicated biology by drilling it down into three areas, which is your neurobiology or what's going on in your brain, your endocrinology, what's going on with your hormones, and your gastroenterology or what's going on with your gut. And the basic reason for that trifecta is so you got your brain we understand that that's really important and hopefully we all understand that anything and everything that happens in your body is happening because your brain is telling it to happen so 
brain, very important. I think we understand that. Hormones, very important. Hormones are essentially the way your brain and other areas of your body communicate. We're speaking English right now. The way your brain talks to your reproductive organs, for example, is through hormones. So that's a language your body speaks. So clearly brain is important. Clearly hormones are important. What we're finding recently is your gut, what they call your second brain, is also extremely important because it is basically your second brain. And a good way to think about this is so why is your brain so important? Your brain's so important because it helps you interact with the outside world. It takes in stimulus from the outside world and it internalizes it and you do things based upon that. What is your digestive system? It is taking things from the outside world, internalizing them and doing things based upon that. So you've got your brain, you've got your hormones, you've got your gut, and those things are communicating with your hormones and those things are helping you to interact with the outside world to internalize it and then make decisions based upon it. Okay, so brain and hormones. I've been uh, recently um, much more interested than I was years ago because uh, I think I, I tell people we've sort of got, in my estimation, we've got the diet part dialed in, we've got the exercise part dialed in, we've got sleep. But the, the, the brain, the psyche, um, the past history... Uh, the potential psychological trauma, the thoughts in the brain, how much of of the mind of an individual and whether it's uh, dwelling on the past or uh, obsessing about the future or whatever, how much of that do you think is influencing one's ability to uh, shed excess body fat? It would be impossible, in my opinion, to overestimate the impact that the psychology that your psychology can have on your biology if you look just as an extreme anecdotal example there are cases where schizophrenics so people with multiple personality disorder when they switch between personalities they for example one of their personalities may be pre-diabetic and the other one isn't so literally the same person in quotations when their brain switches between personalities. Now this is extreme schizophrenia. They can literally have their metabolic system change in conjunction with it. You say, how is that possible? Well, you're, again, your brain is what's regulating hormones, all these types of things. So if one of your personalities changes the chemistry in your brain and tells it to change the chemistry everywhere else in your body, could, could we have a stronger vote of confidence that your brain can completely change and affect your metabolic system? I think not. That's pretty interesting. I, I want you to shoot me a link to that because I want to check into that. That's, that's the kind of stuff that's fascinating me right now that uh, particularly as I encounter the, you know, the 15% of the people who stall out in their uh, fat loss journey, uh, they've, they've – um, you know, they've re-accessed re a substantial amount of health. They've lost a substantial amount of weight. Their energy levels are, are where they ought to be. Uh, they don't get sick ever. You know, by all practical measures, they are, um, they're healthy and they're fit, but the body s still seems to hang on to what, you know, what even objectively would be considered too much weight. And I'm wondering how much of that is resident in the thoughts, the, the psychology in the brain that's creating some hormonal input that's not allowing the body to release that those extra stored calories. The, the, and the brain, there's also another level here that could be influencing these people. There's been all sorts of studies done on yo-yo dieting and the, the perpetual or the impact 
that repeated yo-yo dieting has in perpetuity for a person. So these studies are generally done on rodents simply because it would be illegal to do them on humans because yo-yo dieting is so destructive to your health that no, no research institution would ever allow people to be subjected to these types of studies. But in these studies, they will weight cycle rats. So they'll do what a lot of Americans do. They will starve them. They'll drop in weight temporarily as long as they can tolerate starvation, and then they'll go back to feeding them a normal amount of food. So they won't binge. They'll just say, here's a normal amount of food, and the rats yo-yo diet. What these studies consistently show is that every single time a rat yo-yo diets, the sub, so they yo-yo diet once. Okay, yo-yo diet number two. Yo-yo diet number two, they will lose weight slower and they will gain weight back faster than they did the first time they yo-yo dieted. And then you look at their basal metabolic rates, you look at various levels of hormones, you look at various levels of inflammation in their brain, and those have changed. They have fundamentally changed. So it might be useful to think of your metabolic system and your neurological system after repeated bouts of starvation-induced yo-yo dieting, a bit like a, a bone that you have broken over and over and over again. I've screwed up my right knee so many times that there's this giant calcium deposit developing on the left side of it that there's really nothing I can do about it, right? It's just repeated injury over and over again. After a while, changes the baseline level of functionality in your body. This is why I get so amped up about calorie counting and starvation dieting approaches, which are still, by and large, the way most common approach that people have uh, tackle health and fitness issues with because they do not work 95% of the time. Not only that, they have been shown to cause permanent damage, meaning that these individuals you're talking about who are, it's, they're doing everything right now. Well, you know, I'm doing everything right now in terms of my health, but my knees still screwed up because I didn't do things right in the past. And that's heartbreaking. And we need to avoid that for as many people as we can. Uh, and I think you see that really graphically on shows like The Biggest Loser, where, where you take people who are uh, tremendously overweight, who have, who have in fact yo-yo dieted most of their lives to get to the point that they are right now, and they, they go on a show like that out of frustration. The next thing you know, they're put into a, um, a, a severe state of deprivation where they're allowed 800 to 1,200 calories a day, and they're forced to burn off, theoretically, 6,000 calories. They lose 100, 120 pounds over a 90-day period. And for all intents and purposes, they show up on the final show looking slim and trim in their, uh, you know, in their girdle. But, but the next thing you, you, you hear a year later, they gained all the weight back. And the rapidity with which they gain the weight back, that's what I find heartbreaking. And it seems to be pretty much a theme throughout a, a lot of these shows that if, you, that if you come from a history of yo-yo dieting and then you make, you make it even worse with the final um, assault, which is this calorie deprivation and, and exercise increase to that, to that effect, um, it just can't, it can't be good for the body. There is a significant amount of metabolic damage that is done that's now going to be even more difficult to repair. In addition to The Biggest Loser, another great example of the consequence of repeated yo-yo dieting, I'm sure you've seen this with all the people you've worked with, Mark, is if you have a, a couple. So if you have a heterosexual couple, so you've got a woman and a man, let's say they're married. And let's say the woman, uh, like many women in this culture, have been 
just pressured her entire life to eat less, to be less, to shrink into the background, to count calories. If you go on a date, make sure you don't eat more than the man, which is ridiculous. We can talk about that on a separate show. But let's say she's been subject to that. So let's say she's yo-yo dieted many, many times. And let's say her husband has never yo-yo dieted because, in fact, he's been told, be a man, eat more. It puts hair on your chest. So again, we can talk about that in a separate show. And and let's say that in in this marriage, that the woman is the wellness CEO of the household. So she's the one that's preparing the food. She's the one that's buying the food. Let's say she decides to start eating real food. So she does this. She's putting all of her effort into this. She's really going all in. And as a byproduct, her husband is is being pulled along for the ride. He, you know, he's still drinking, uh, you know, some beers at night. He's still sneaking a little bit of snack food. But he, he's he's moving in the right direction accidentally. So often, Mark, I hear that the female in the relationship who has yo-yo dieted anywhere from five to ten times and is trying harder and is objectively doing better will lose weight slower than her husband who is not on really on track but he's never yo-yo dieted so it's a bit like you know they both broke their ankles but the husband is a 13 year old perfectly healthy ankle whereas you know the, the wife's ankle is is 75 years old and it's broken six times so you see this oh it's like oh my god is it just easier for men to lose weight than women well no. it's easier for people who haven't had their metabolism broken repeatedly over decades to lose weight than it is for people who have not been so fortunate. That's a very interesting uh, revelation and thought that I really hadn't featured much in my own thinking. So I want the audience to kind of consider that for a second, that uh, one of the reasons, if you're looking for reasons, uh, for a a plateau or a stall or a lack of uh, continuation in an ability to drop weight may have to do more with uh, previous history of of yo-yo dieting and some form of um, set point, shall we say, that the body has readjusted itself to, uh, then just, um, you're not doing it right, you know. Um, so we didn't talk about that. I mean, we're, we're kind of all over the place here talking about the, the, um, the concept of weight loss and, and why it fails in some cases. What is the, um, the role of activity and, and uh, exercise specifically, but activity in general, uh, in your thought process and your programs, Jonathan? I define activity much like you do, Mark. I don't. I think there's ex- exercise and there's activity. Activity is not exercise. So taking the stairs, walking around, being a person, <laughs> like literally just doing. Like there's a reason we have legs. There's a reason we have arms. We're meant to use them. That that is being active, and we should all be active. We should ten thousand steps a day. I work at a standing desk. The more you can move your body, the better. If you want to be able to walk when you're 85, it's a pretty good idea to walk before you're 85. So as much activity as frequently as possible, I have, to my knowledge, I've never seen a study or any sort of research that has suggested that activity is anything but positively related to well-being. Okay, that's activity though. Exercise is a totally different ballgame. So exercise at high levels of intensity with low impact, really focusing on safety for short periods of time has a tremendous positive hormonal benefit on the body. It's not a thing about trying to burn more calories. It's about trying to change that hormonal composition in the body. And then we have forms of exercise sadly, the most popular forms of exercise, like waking up really early in the morning and jogging on pavement for two hours and breathing in car exhaust, which actually causes a negative 
hormonal impact on the body. So exercise is very powerful medicine and we need to make sure we're taking it correctly, but we should all be active. I like that. I, um, I'm fascinated by bipedalism and the fact that humans locomote on two feet, basically. Uh, if you think of it in terms of uh, high tech, we're basically segways. How is it that we don't fall over uh, front, back, or side? It's just, if you, if you stop and think for a minute how we can balance all day long upright on these tiny little platforms, of which we only have two. We don't have three. We're not even a, a tripod. We're certainly not a quadruped. Um, so bipedalism sort of requires it, that we are constantly adjusting to the environment and you don't have to do that when you sit or when you are lying down or reclined. But when you're just when you're standing at your desk, there is this, this unconscious adjustment that's happening thousands of times a second where the segue in you, the gyromotor, is sort of figuring out where you should be relative to gravity and relative to the ground. And I think there is a powerful, we talk about psychology, I think it ties back to your brain a little bit when you think about positions we get into when we want to go to sleep or we want to be at rest, right? We, we generally, we lie down or we sit down. I personally have found, and this is getting into the realm of just anecdote, working at a standing desk, having meetings, standing up, being up, being tall. Actually, there's quite a bit of science around standing tall and standing with proper posture. But the, the way that actually changes your brain your psychology in terms of your confidence, your, your, your self-esteem, your energy levels, just the psychology of standing is also very encouraging as well. Do you have a, um, uh, a standard routine that you prescribe people that you work with when it comes to the exercise part? It depends on where people are starting from. Certainly a 22-year-old male CrossFitter is going to be, I would tell them different things than a 75-year-old, 350-pound female. There are common principles that would apply to both individuals, but exercise, physical movement, it's, it's so goal-specific, Mark. Think about how a shot putter would train as compared to a pole vaulter, right? Or a marathon runner compared to a sprinter. So the way you move your body very much depends on the outcome you want from that activity. If the outcome is just general wellness, uh, that would be a much different prescription than the ability to flip as many tires as you can in 60 seconds. Right. So we've talked about a lot of different uh, aspects of fitness and health today. And um, maybe this is a great segue into uh, your new program, Sane Solution. Is this? Uh, tell us about Sane Solution and how did it arise, and what are you offering people? Earlier in our conversation, Mark, we talked about how, despite your amazing efforts, despite my efforts, despite the efforts of everyone in the wonderful Primo and Paleo and, and ancestral communities, right? We are we are sadly just a drop in the bucket when it comes to mainstream change. To put that in perspective, so I know a lot of us, people listen to this show, 
which is like uh, this this calorie starvation model and just just try harder. We're like, oh yeah, clearly that's not the way to go. But look at the one. There is one company in the world that that really owns this market. It's a company called Weight Watchers, and Weight Watchers doesn't really have their own diet. All they do is provide a set of tools and systems that help people count calories. They're agnostic, so a lot of corporations use them because they're not really picking a side. They're just saying, here's some tools to help you eat fewer calories. Weight Watchers has a market capitalization of 1.5 billion dollars. They employ about 28,000 people in 30 countries. So that that's just like holy moly. Like clearly change can happen. I mean Weight Watchers has has had massive market success, but sadly they're uh, promulgating an approach that was the best we could do in the 1960s and and we can do a lot better now. So what we're trying to do with Sane Solution is essentially provide Weight Watchers 2.0. It's that simple. It's it's saying, what if you were to say, I, I want to develop an agnostic set of tools? So it's not picking any specific diet. It's just saying, give me the best current science has to offer and give me the best uh, interaction design that, that science has to offer. And how are people communicating nowadays? So let's put modern technology and let's put modern biology on the forefront and let's develop a set of agnostic tools that can help people and corporations and groups improve the quality of the food they're eating in a fun game-like social fashion, rather than to focus on reducing the number of calories they're consuming regardless of their source. So everything that a Weight Watchers would provide, for example, Weight Watchers provides calorie counting apps. We provide a food quality app. Weight Watchers provides support groups that help you to count calories more effectively. We provide support groups that help you improve food quality more, effective, more effectively. So we're really just trying to say, we want to provide an agnostic set of tools that for the people who food quality works better than calorie quantity, now they have their Weight Watchers, a, a saner Weight Watchers, what we call a sane solution. That sounds great. Now, is there a, is there a, a fitness component to this part as well? Not currently. There, there will be. But 2015, our focus is really on, we have some amazing uh, patent pending technology around uh, qualifying various foods and various meals. We're really focused on the nutritional component first. And, and once we can hopefully make a difference there and, and raise some more capital, <laughs> then we'll go into the fitness arena, certainly. Right. And like I say, 80% of your body composition is determined by how you eat. So uh, that's always the, the first best place to go. Um, so can people, where can people find out about Sane Solution? So go to sanesolution.com. Again, that's sanesolution.com. You can sign up for free. We're in beta right now. And for free, you can try every element of the system. And then, of course, there is a premium option available where if you, if you upgrade to premium, your mobile application, for example, will automatically upgrade with a bunch of new features and functionality. Your online program will automatically upgrade in place with a bunch of new features and functionality. So there's a free thing everyone can try today at sanesolution.com. And then if they like it and they want more, they can upgrade to premium. Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. Well, good luck with that. Um, Jonathan, is there a thought that you'd like to leave our audience with today? 
the simplest way I can distill all the experiences I've had in the past 15 years is that it's quality, not quantity. And I think that applies to things way beyond food. I think it applies to human relationships. I think it applies to productivity in the workplace. And I think it applies to happiness. Let's focus on improving quality and focusing on quality first rather than worrying so much about quantity. I love that. I love that. Um, as it applies to the entire lifestyle. That's great. Brad, is there anything you need to add before we say goodbye to Jonathan? I appreciate you guys coming on the Primal Blueprint podcast for that lively discussion. Jonathan, good luck with your work at The Sane Solution. Thank you, listeners, for being with Jonathan Baylor and Mark Sisson, and we'll talk to you next time. Many health experts believe that gut bacteria represents the next breakthrough in optimizing health and immune function. When you nourish healthy intestinal flora with primal eating habits and the high-potency probiotics of primal flora, you protect yourself from the everyday illnesses and compromised digestion that are common in stressful modern life. The unique strains of probiotics and primal flora help you improve digestion and regularity, bolster immune function, and can even assist you with weight loss by optimizing fat metabolism. One daily capsule is all it takes to ensure your body is thriving with billions of healthy gut bacteria so that you can enjoy optimal health 24-7. Order Primal Flora today at PrimalBlueprint.com to take advantage of our risk-free trial.